On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, How will we hold on to ancient wisdom traditions while applying them creatively in today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with American Buddhist icons Sharon Salzberg and Robert Thurman on loving our enemies as the most rational and pragmatic of moves. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Well, you know, I'd like to start um, where I start all my conversations. And, and I probably asked you this question all those years ago, Sharon, but I um, just want to hear a little bit about, um, you know, what, we, what we wanna, I want to focus on with you um, a, as we speak is this teaching and thinking you're doing about enemies um, in the broadest sense of how we approach that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'd like to start with just a little bit about... Um, whether there was a spiritual background to your childhood and also whether, you know, in your earliest life, you know, how language and a sense of enemies was present for you, spiritually or otherwise. No, that's very interesting. I don't know that there was a spiritual presence in my earliest life. There was certainly the presence of a lot of suffering and confusion. Yeah. And out of that, I, uh, <clears throat> out of that, I really reached for something that and I actually did sense always, not that it was given unto me, but I always had a sense there was something other, there was something bigger than the the situations I found myself in. And, you know, my uh, childhood was marked by a lot of disruption, a lot of loss. My mother died when I was very young. And, and all of this was surrounded by a very strange kind of silence. No one would ever actually talk about anything. And so... It was when I went to college and I first encountered the Buddhist teaching in an Asian philosophy course, ironically, which I honestly think I chose just because it was like on Tuesday or something. That's where I first heard the Buddha saying, there's suffering in life. It's not just you. You don't have to feel aberrant and alone and weird. It's, it's a part of life and you belong. And, and that was an enormous opening for me. And, and then I heard that you can do something about that suffering, not the kind of you know suffering of circumstance. It doesn't mean everything's always going to be pleasant or it's going to level off into this right. delightful place, but we can be different with everything. We can approach everything in a different way with a full heart and, and with wisdom. And, and that possibility is what sent me off to India. Hmm. And, and, and Bob... Um how about you? Was there was there a spiritual background to your childhood, and 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 was there a sense or a vocabulary well, I, of enemies? I'm not sure. I I didn't have quite such a dramatic um, situation as Sharon did. My parents survived, um, although they both died fairly young, fifties and sixties, which to me is fairly young mm-hmm. <laughs> now. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> but um, my mother's spiritual thing was Shakespeare. <laughs> and she felt Shakespeare was the Buddha. Huh. And my father did have a little bit mystical side in relation to some of the French and Italian and Spanish Catholic thinkers, but he was not a Catholic, and we weren't church-going particularly. And um, I, I remember just feeling that I was kind of a little bit like a stranger in a strange land. Hmm. It was my youth, because everybody was... My mother was an actress, 
And there was a lot of theater in the house, I felt, you know, a lot of emotional Sturm und Drang <laughs> on and off. And I was like the peacemaker and, you know, it seemed to me like, why are they getting so wound up, all this kind of thing. <laughs> But I, and I didn't like, though, I didn't like God much. I liked Jesus. I thought he was very sweet. And his whole scene about, you know, the, every bird and the lilies of the valley and the Sermon on the Mount, I, I, I liked that. But then God was behind the scenes there, like, you know, sacrificing him. And I mean, I just thought that was weird. Okay. And I didn't believe in his omnipotent creatorship at all. And that was made me, put me into a debate mode with, with the pastor in the place where I went to play basketball and sing, <laughs> on, uh, the brick church on Park Avenue. <laughs> and, uh, and then on the science side, I was into science, but uh, on the science side, they also had their severe dogmatisms and limitations, which I didn't like. And so I was kind of felt myself like out of place in the American society, mm. although I did my best to compete within it. And I, you know, I got good grades and I did whatever up to up to my teenage years. But until I discovered um, yoga, spirituality, and particularly, I like Sufism, actually. I like Christian mystics. Mm. I liked some of the Swami mystics. But it was really the Buddha who really got to me. Hmm. And uh, in the Tibetan form, when I finally found the Tibetans, right, right. that really did to me. Although one funny thing, I wasn't that into Tibet per se. I was really into India. Hmm. But the thing is that the, that the Indian Buddhist great revolution in the world, great manifestation in the world, is, is preserved in Tibet very powerfully. Right, right. And lost in India, you know. So right. I, I, that was, I think, why I was so captivated by the Tibetans, hmm. not to mention the Dalai Lama's personality and so on. And how did the two of you um, come to be doing these workshops and teachings together on this subject of enemies? <laughs> Is there a story I don't know there? How did it happen? Yet. How did it happen? Well, Bob, Bob and I are old friends. Bob, um, before he was at Columbia, was at Amherst College, and the center that I co-founded, the Insight Meditation Society, is in Barry, Massachusetts, which is yeah. about say forty, forty-five minutes away from Amherst, and so. I remember Bob living in this big yellow house, and these were the days when the Dalai Lama would come to visit, and <laughs> as I'm told, you know, wander around Bob's house, opening up closet doors and saying <laughs> things did. like, "Oh, very messy, <laughs> untidy, <laughs> untidy." Um, you know, and so we uh, we got to be friends then. He was he was raising his family and was a, a you know professor and. And we kept trying to cook up things to do together, like what could we possibly do here in the Pioneer Valley in Massachusetts? And and then Bob came to New York City, Columbia, and eventually they established this gorgeous retreat center uh, called Menla Mountain uh, Center in uh, Phoenicia, New York. And we began teaching there together, and we began teaching this particular workshop together because mm -hmm. we come from two different strands of Buddhist tradition, and yet we... Uh, We enjoy, I think we both enjoy really exploring the relevance of these teachings to modern life, really, as we find it. Right, right. Right. And, and I think what's so, um, you know, such, a, such an important starting point is, is, is this, this reality base that I, that I, I so love in Buddhism, right? Is even talking about something as, as painful uh, and contentious as enemies and really starting with the fact that... Um, That everything is always uh, constantly changing, even things that are good, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that 
in life there will be suffering and we will be harmed. And so that there, this is a reality, not something that you begin mm-hmm. by wishing away. Or, I mean, you know, you have to work with it, right? Right. Well, I mean, I think that's, that's exactly right. And we, we face it. We find inner enemies. We find outer enemies. We make things of life like death or suffering enemies. Um, life is, is complicated. It's challenging. It's wonderful. It's, it's all of that. And mm-hmm. uh, sort of trying to pretend that that won't happen, that we're just going to be uh, perfectly content all of the time and not face these challenges is is completely unreal. And I think it's much more important, obviously, and much more powerful to start with what's real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Not only start with, but I think that the, nowadays when people ask me what is the essential, your essential sort of one phrase description of Buddhism, mm-hmm. I always like to say Buddhism is engaged realism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, because the Buddhist tradition doesn't say that that the Buddha met, met God and God had the answer or that Buddha discovered that God knew what was going on and he didn't, this kind of thing. They say that Buddha himself discovered the nature of reality, completely understood it, fully and totally, and also understood that other beings could do so and also understood that only by such discovery can you find freedom from that suffering. If you really know the reality, then you will be free of the suffering was his real innovative teaching, which has lasted now for thousands of years. Yeah. So realism, being realistic, is, is the key. You know? And, um, and I, I do want to kind of go through uh, the way you unfold this subject of enemies. So, you know, in a sense, um, all of this, thinking about enemies circles back to inner work. But, but let's start with the the reality of, of outer enemies, as you say. I mean, those others who make our lives difficult. Um, you know, one of the things, Bob, that you've written is, it is highly rational for us to love our enemies, <laughs> which I think puts two <laughs> things together, uh, rationality and love of enemies, which uh, is, is an in- interesting juxtaposition. <laughs> what right. do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Well... Uh, Jesus is the one who used that phrase. Yeah, but it's the hardest teaching. prominently in our memory. (laughs) Although Buddha used the same phrase, actually, in a slightly different phrasing, as far as we know. Of course, we don't know exactly what any of those ancient people actually really said. It's all transmitted through different people's writings and whatever. But I'm sure they said something in in that vein. And Buddha said that hatred will never come to an end by hatred. Only love can overcome hatred, is what he said. Although usually in that tradition, the Burmese or Theravada tradition, uh, the Buddhists have a mid uh, a midway station where they talk about hatred, and the next step is non-hatred. Mm. <laughs> and then once you've got non-hatred going, you can move over toward love and compassion. <laughs> I, I think that's so, useful. I think that's really yeah, yeah, useful. Yeah, it, it is. They're very psychologically astute about that sort of thing, I, I, I totally think. Yeah. But the reason why it's rational in a Buddhist sense is that the Buddhist worldview is that we live in a much larger continuity than a single lifetime. We've all had infinite previous lifetimes, and we have all will have infinite future lifetimes. And I would, and uh, Mahayana Buddhists, I think, would argue, and maybe ultimately Theravada would agree, that that will be endless also the future. 
It's just that once you attain enlightenment or nirvana, then it'll be blissful endlessness rather than a painful one. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's why it's a very big motivation to attain nirvana, actually, who wants an endless painful existence. Mm-hmm. Nobody. So, so within that, hatred or anger at anybody, for whatever reason, changes the quality of your life. And it, it, it predisposes you to forms of life that are unpleasant in a state of, and they reinforce your tendency to be in conflict and competition with others. And so even if you win one round in one life over one enemy, then you have become like that enemy by being violent, angry, whatever it may be, and then your rebirth will become something more appropriate to an inner state of anger and violence and hatred. And therefore, you'll be more in conflict with your environment and with others. So therefore, to love the enemy is highly rational from your own inner perspective in that sense. And actually, in the outer perspective, if you, if you take the definition of love as wishing for the happiness of the beloved, which is the Buddhist definition of it, then if your enemy was really happy... He might get tired of bothering, he or she might get tired of bothering to be your enemy. Okay. Like, why bother chasing that guy? You know, I'm having a groovy time over somewhere else. So in a way, it kind of makes sense to wish the enemy to be happy, but even on that level. So, But it's a little bit of a stretch if you only right. live this one life from right. birth to death. It's a stretch, I agree. And at one point, we thought of putting a question mark after the title, like, love your enemies? Yeah. <laughs> Right, right. Just to be right. provocative. It's yeah. I mean, it's very. It's <laughs> it is reasonable when you put it in that kind of framework. But uh, uh, you know, something that I think about a lot is that um, I think you know, say in Christianity, it's all, this is often discussed as there's the the problem of evil or you know, great enemies is it, it um, and even maybe in our culture we tend to focus on these dramatic, you know, dramatized enemies, you know, the Bernie Madoff or the bully or the catastrophic danger or the murderer. But, you know, something that I'm aware of in real life, day to day, um, I think so much pain and suffering is caused by, I don't know what I would even call maybe the near outer enemy, right? Not the villain out there, but... um, the people, people close to us, you know, in, in workplaces or in families mm. or in, in friendships. I don't know, Sharon, I, I think I remember that in your early life, you know, you said that your mother died, that you were in different foster families. And I mean, it's like people are vulnerable. Um, and it's, it's those people who are, have a power, uh, such a destructive mm-hmm. power to do damage in those circumstances. And, and that's where I feel like, you know, in the real life, as you say, Bob, in, a, in this lifetime, uh, kind of the rubber meets the road. So, I mean, mm-hmm. where do these beautiful teachings start to speak th- there? Well, actually, I wasn't in foster families, but I was in different family configurations. Oh, okay. When, All right. Uh, I tried to calculate it once, and I think I was in five different family configurations wow. when I left for college <laughs> at the age of wow. 16. All right. Um, but I, I think that's, that's so crucial. I, I want to say... Something about that middle place, learning to stop hating. Yeah. Uh, apart from, because the word love is so loaded. And what does it mean? Our, our fear, of course, is that it means something very passive and complacent. And I'm going to let people hurt me and I'm right, going to let right. them oppress other people and I'm going to be a doormat. And uh, it's a very uh, nuanced and subtle quality. It's very hard to see love as a force, 
as a power rather than mm -hmm. as a weakness, but that is its, its reality. So that middle place is very compelling, whether it's a colleague at work who's sort of annoying or it's somebody who disappoints us um, just in the neighborhood or our yeah. community or it's the villain uh, even, um, to have some recognition that the way we can be consumed by hatred or even just an obsession, you know, that mm -hmm. that habit we can have of going over someone's faults again mm -hmm. and again and again. It's the same list, but mm -hmm. we'd like to go over it again, you know, <laughs> a few more times. And uh, the way we give over so much of our energy mm -hmm. to someone else in this kind of negative or destructive way. And, uh, you know, whether it's a minor annoyance or a very grave injustice, there's a way in which we want to be whole. And we don't want to have lost so much of our life's energy to someone else's actions or problems. And we want that energy to return to us and, and for us to be able to go on in a more creative, generative way. And, and that's the process. That's, that's why people engage in this process. Mm -hmm. And I mean, so what do you mean? What, tell me the process. Describe that. Well, I think first being aware of uh, how it actually feels to be frightened, to be so angry, to uh, be so consumed with somebody else to be able to see those states, to be able to have a little more distance or space from to, those to, states. To just gain some self-awareness about the fact that that you are going over and over that and letting it consume yeah, you Yeah, exactly, way. and how it feels, because then we want to let go out of the greatest compassion for ourselves, not because we're trying to be a goody-goody or a certain kind of person or meet a you know, kind of image of how we're supposed to be or, or match, uh, you know, someone else's... Uh, dictum of how we're supposed to be, but out of the greatest love and compassion for ourselves, we just don't want to do that anymore. Right. Bob, what are you, what are you thinking well, about this? Well, my uh, feeling about it is that, uh, yes, that, uh, and why I'm thrilled to have this book imply a link between Buddha and Jesus, which is mainstream in our culture. Uh, showing their commonality is that Jesus's own statement of you know love thine enemies is negated really by our modern materialistic psychology. In other words, mm -hmm. the modern psychology says, oh that's unrealistic. Freud said, oh that's unrealistic. You have to have you know you have to be more normal. You have to you know, love your enemies. Some saint maybe can do it, but we don't even know if there are any saints because after mm -hmm. all, they all are dragging around that unconscious with them. The unconscious, you know, the id with its id and its eros <laughs> and thanatos and the whole thing. Yeah. And there's aggression and hostility. And so our sort of militaristic society's working psychology is that you have to be ego competitive. You have to, like, be aggressive. You have to do your thing, particularly with males, but I think in general with everybody. And Buddhism doesn't want to interfere with the religious aspect in the West. It's not trying to convert people to Buddhism. Uh, but it has a psychology, a kind of mind science that is usable within whatever religious framework. And so I kind of, you know, Jesus himself, because of the social circumstances in his culture, was only able to teach for four years. And the Buddha, poor guy, he had to slave away for 46 years after his <laughs> enlightenment. And so he had time to provide more practical methodologies to underlie these sort of high moral-sounding right. uh, slogans like love your enemy. And so 
just like what Sharon just said, it's more you know people. Some people can make a choice that they would rather not carry around the burden of hatred. I was listening to Martin Luther King recently in a show a program on somewhere, and um, uh, John Lewis was quoting him as saying that the burden of hatred is just too much to bear. It's just unbearable, and we're not going to deal with it. And we're gonna, even though they're setting dogs on us, they're hitting fire hoses, they're beating us, arresting us, lynching us, we are not going to hate them. And um, because that's not the way, and even that that's paralyzing to us, and it cripples us actually. Yeah. And uh, there can be such a thing. Now, now, the other thing, of course, that we haven't mentioned yet, but both Sharon and I are completely agree with, there is such a thing as tough love, or in, in Tibetan, we would, the Tibetans would like, prefer maybe the expression fierce compassion. And uh, this is like where you don't indulge another person in their evil doing or their nasty behavior, and sometimes you have to be forceful. But that forcefulness with them will have a different impact and will be subliminally sensed by them as coming from a different place when it doesn't have that extra bite, that extra sting of hatred and vindictiveness in it. It's just forceful opposition to whatever negative things they are doing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the psychology of love your enemies does not just mean come and trample us, come kill me, my enemy, oh yes, I'm going to shoot me or something. It, It means... You know, I want you to be happy. I'm going to be happy no matter what. And and it's better. You'll be more happy if you don't kill me, actually. <laughs> and I might be more happier if you don't kill me, but I'm going to be happy whatever you do to me. But on that basis, I might strongly, I might take your weapon away. I might be a kung fu master. Mm. I might, whatever, I might shoot you. Actually, if you're about to shoot 150 other people, I might be forced. I try not to kill you, but I would. I might be forced to do something forceful. There is the concept, in other words, of surgical violence sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. and, we're, and we, 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 we deal with that in the, in the t- book, you know, we do. Um, you know, I wonder as you, as the two of you, this is the hardest kind of question, as the two of you live with these teachings, um, I think sometimes in the, as, uh, as, ex- as exacting as that kind of, um, kind of life drama is, there's, there's also... It may be hardest of all to put these kinds of things into practice, you know, say in your most intimate relationships, right? And um, do do you sure. do you find it? Do you find that as you work with these teachings, and I know you both have long time meditation practices, that do do you become more able to um, modulate your responses like that? <laughs> well, there now, you go. I, 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 one thing, one thing I didn't say about when when Sharon and I, I this gives me a chance to go backtrack a little and talk okay. about when Sharon and I got together. Um, you know what? Why I love working with Sharon, and why I still love working with Sharon, and, and uh, I was a little uh, in my Buddhist studies had a different path, and in the Tibetan tradition, traditionally, they do not encourage people to meditate right away. Actually. They're actually, they think that if you meditate right away before you have learned something and before you have unlearned a number of distorted things, Mm. that your meditation could take you in the wrong direction because you're operating under some sort of distorted concepts. So they they press you to to learn things. And my original teacher, this wonderful old Mongolian gentleman named Geshe Wangyal, who was a Mongolian who'd been in Tibet for 35 years and was a good friend of the Dalai Lama and his relatives, uh, he kept interrupting me when I would try to meditate, when I was first studying. 
And I would get on the Four Noble Truths and I'd be going, and Nirvana, I'd be going for whatever my concept of Nirvana was, out of body, actually. And I was having some kind of really good, you know, altered states. <laughs> and the guy had like radar and he would show up and he would interrupt me three in the morning. He'd come and like knock on the door of my room and say, you're, you're, you're not sleeping. Why are you wasting your time? What are you doing? Meditating? That's a waste of time. Come have some yogurt in the kitchen, this kind of thing. He would, he would tend to do that. So... All this, then I became a scholar, of course, and a professor, and et cetera. And so I, I was more on the conceptual side of Buddhism, you know, the philosophical conceptual right. side, than the meditative side. But I was after a while, I was beginning to really miss the meditating. So I, I really envied Sharon and Jack and Joseph and those guys who had this, who had, they were professionally meditating. <laughs> they could meditate all the time. And I think Sharon is more calm than I am and more stabilized and more enlightened. <laughs> and so I like being around her. It makes me more calm and more stabilized, more in the moment. Although the, although meditation is so much in demand in our society now that they're all becoming these terribly busy meditators. <laughs> and they're doing a lot of their work on planes and trains. It's and, competitive meditation. And, oh, that's right. But anyway, they are like that. So that was what uh, that's what I just wanted to bring up. So then in my own case about the anger thing, it was always a big problem for me in my life. And um, people can, I think maybe it was my actual nature or maybe it was my lineage, a bunch of military generals. Mm. I have a lot of generals in my family, mm. uh, rednecks, you know. And also maybe my older brother used to pound on me a little too much, which I defended myself with hot temper. Mm. So whatever all the different causes were, I tended to have an explosive temper. So definitely Buddhism has helped me, but I'm not, I'm, I don't claim to be enlightened, so I'm not saying that I'm totally 100% cured. But like the Dalai Lama likes to say, he also loses his temper, he says. And he likes to say that, well, nowadays it only lasts for a second and he doesn't hold the bitterness about it. And sometimes, very often, it doesn't last. I don't think he really does get really mad, actually. But mm. nowadays, and he did a bit more. He was more nervous when he was younger. So, so I think I still have a harder time with it. But I'm still working on it, and I like being with Sharon because she encourages me <laughs> to be more mindful and try to interrupt the mechanism of the anger explosion. <laughs> you know, the tough, so which, I, which, which then I have the danger of rationalizing and saying, oh, it's tough love or fierce compassion. Actually, I'm just mad. So Sharon helps me with that. My wife, of course, is my main guru on that. And, uh, but Sharon also because is she's a big there. Help, so. She's there. Well, and okay, so, 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 so this all in a roundabout way, brings us to this notion of inner enemies. And I, 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 I love that, that, that correlation you draw between this teaching of Jesus, of love of enemies, um, which is such a beautiful image and so compelling, but really it, it, what, what it needs is exacting inner work. And, and that's, mm-hmm. that teaching about how to do that exacting inner work and sustain it and grow it, you're right. Um, is is not necessarily there at the same time that that that, that beautiful phrase is there. Um, so, so this work of so so even so so talking about dealing with outer enemies ultimately always leads back to inner work, doesn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, there is that tremendous irony and poignancy of life that we can't look even if we do see somebody's. Uh, wrong actions and malevolent speech or whatever is coming from a place of suffering, which we, you know, we do believe it is. And even if we see that, yeah. even if we perceive that, 
the great poignancy of life is that you can't look at somebody else and say, poof, your suffering's gone, you know, <laughs> you're a better person now. Um, you know, we don't have that kind of control. We don't have that kind of dominance. And I usually say when I'm teaching, you know, I think it would likely be a better world if I did, if any one of us did, but we don't. And so we we understand that and we do what we can, obviously, to change conditions and uh be helpful, be restorative, you know, work to to try to make things different. But um, it's not going to be in our hands, ultimately, what we can mold much more successfully, although that is also not a case of, poof, now I'm better. Yeah. Uh, but we can work with ourselves, with our own minds and hearts, and mm-hmm. and become really actually transformed in a real way. So just how do you start at the most basic level of talking about where where that work begins? Well, for me, it would begin with mindfulness. It would begin with what we were talking about earlier, just a, a sense of looking, because we actually don't know. We, we know what we've been taught, that maybe uh, vengefulness is good, that love is weak, uh, whatever it might be, the assumptions we carry, the concepts, and and we need to take a direct look at the entire range of our emotional landscape to know for ourselves, you know, is vulnerability always wrong? Is um, that kind of defensiveness always right? What is the strength of anger? It does have energy, which is fantastic. Yeah. It's a great attribute, but look at that brittleness. Look at that sense of tunnel vision. You know, if you think about the last time you were really, really, really angry at yourself, it's probably not also a time where you think, you know, I did that great thing that very same morning. I said that really stupid thing. It's like, mm-hmm. that's gone. I mean, our whole sense of who we are and all that we will ever be just collapses around that stupid thing we said. And and so we look at the whole nature, the flavor, the texture of all of these states, and, and we then use the mindfulness to really work with letting go with what we feel is bringing us down and making our lives smaller and more filled with suffering and enhancing and enriching those qualities that really bring us to the reality, which is that we're all connected and that we need to care about one another and ourselves. You know... It's marvelous. Mm, marvelous. I think physically as well as um, emotionally, we, we instinctively, I can certainly speak for myself in this, you know, recoil from the reality of feeling vulnerable or afraid, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we... We layer. I mean, anger gets layered on top of that because it feels like a more powerful response. And, mm-hmm. and but then we mm-hmm. stop being able to tell the difference ourselves, right? You don't. You, right. you stop right. knowing. I'm scared. You say I'm angry. Um, yes. You know, Sharon. I know one thing that I've. I, I. You've said in different ways at different times, and I just found this. These were words I think from another interview you gave as I was getting ready to talk to you again. That you, you know, it's, it's one of life's big mysteries to me. You said that we don't talk to each other about the most common things like the fact that we wake up in the morning feeling confused and scared and full of self-doubt. The miracle is when Mm -hmm. someone finally names it, that's so liberating. And Mm -hmm. I mean, really what you're talking about is being honest and it's the most frightening thing to admit that you're afraid, but what a relief, Mm -hmm. what a relief when we can do that. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's like me as a... um, 15-year-old or 16-year-old, or I guess I was maybe 16 or 17 at that point in college at that Asian 
philosophy course, you know, to hear that the Buddha said right out loud, there's suffering in life. Guess what? It's not just you. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to hide or, or you know, sort of seek others who are suffering to be hidden from you. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not like that. This is part of the nature of things. And, and if we could just be open and truthful, as you say, and uh, admit that, then we would find one another in that vulnerability instead of feeling so cut off and so apart. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Bob, what are you thinking? What am I thinking? Yeah, as you're listening to that. Do you <laughs> well, want to add anything? That, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. What I was thinking was that, uh, you know, there's a word in, uh, in Buddhism called klesha, or kilesa in Pali, klesha in Sanskrit, which comes from a verb root that means to twist, to something to be twisted. And um, it's translated defilement or affliction by some, by some people. I used to translate affliction. But the best word for it actually is addiction. Mm. And so anger and, and uh, obsession, uh, lust, these things are said to be addictions. If you, and that immediately gets the point across. In other words, it's something that people think is helping them because it gives them a momentary relief from something else. Yeah. But actually, it's leading them into a worse and worse place where they're getting more and more dependent and less and less free. And so... D- dependent, uh, dependent because that uh, because your your the way you're handling it is then all entangled with with the partly, other person. Yes, part right, partly, and partly because you believe when anger comes to you, out meaning in the form of an impulse that you have internally, mm-hmm. this is intolerable. That person did this. This is like something, you know. It's what sort of the inner thought that comes. And it seems to come in a way that is undeniable. You have to act on it. Mm-hmm. It mobilizes right. your adrenaline, your solar plexus, your arms, your body. Heat flushes up into your face. It sort of goes along with a whole complex of things, and you just charge ahead or say something awful or whatever you do. Or you put away in your mind some, some nasty scheme that you're going to implement later mm-hmm. if for some reason you can't do it right away. So, in other words, it takes you over. And that's where mindfulness can interfere with that by being aware of how your mind works and realizing that it's just one impulse and it's one voice within you. And there's another questioning voice and an awareness voice that can say, well, actually, would this be a good idea to blow your top now? <laughs> or, you know, it's like I always like to say it's like otherwise you're like a TV set that has one channel only and no clicker. Mm-hmm. So if you have I don't the, remember what that's the, like. <laughs> If you have the horror, if you have the horror show rising up yeah. from your solar plexus, then you got to have a horror show. Whereas you can click mm-hmm. to the nature show. You know, you can watch the, <laughs> the minnows frolicking in the lake. You know, in the summer. So I'm saying, you know, that we are very clickable. We're very switchable in our our moods and minds. And if we re- so, the very key first point is to recognize that whenever we lose our awareness by any kind of impulse what the Buddhists call the three poisons or the five poisons. They have different words for these kleshas. They even have a list of a hundred of them, mm, mm. the minor ones. And then that is, uh, that is uh, distorting. It's twisting our existence. And, and so it's like any addict, alcohol, drugs, uh, particular drugs. It's like that is not my friend. That is, that's something I'm going to work on against. So there's that turning point where we decide, well, that really doesn't help me. And um, 
And then the key is the, the hopeful thing for some people who, who like their anger. Some people do like their anger. Hmm. The hopeful thing is that that energy of heat, kind of like a heat, you know, the, and actually for, in Buddhist psychology, anger is connected to intelligence, to analytic and critical intelligence, hmm. which sort of takes things apart and looks at their causes because it's sort of disintegrative. It disintegrates what's in front of it <laughs> by analyzing it, which is an interesting connection. And uh, so that energy of strong, powerful energy of heat, force, can be taken away from the conceptual structure of anger at an object and can be, can be ridden in a different way and can be used to heal yourself, can be used to develop inner strength and determination. And that is really a, something much to be, to be ambitious for. That is a great, great goal. Mm. And uh, people like Sharon, who have become more calm and cool and happy <laughs> over life, know they are living demonstrations that this does help. Really, well, it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I, I think also that kind of transmutation is um, is is connected to the, this particular Buddhist uh, notion of metta, loving kindness, which mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which holds not just some kind of compassion towards others, which can be hard to muster, um, but compassion towards oneself, which. Mm-hmm. Makes compassion can be harder. Towards, can be hard. Yeah, can be harder. Right, can be harder. <laughs> but makes all kinds for, of things possible. You know, it's one should not confuse compassion for oneself with self indulgence. Right. 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 That's a difficult. Right. Yeah. That's, I mean, the, you know, metta uh, that struck me so strongly when I first began practicing uh, metta or loving kindness. I was in Burma in 1985 when I first practiced it intensively in a structured way and. I always knew how it was done. I always knew that classically you began with yourself, which I found kind of confusing because I thought, well, surely the higher path, the more spiritual way would be denying yourself and, uh, you know, some kind of self-abnegation and then, you Mm. know, just focusing completely on others and that would be the way. But going back to what is realistic or not, um, they also say that metta or loving kindness is a practice of generosity. It's like generosity of the spirit and the best kind of generosity comes from a sense of inner abundance mm. because if we feel depleted and overcome and exhausted and just burnt out we're not going to have the wherewithal inside the sense of resourcefulness to care about anybody even to notice them all that much you know just mm-hmm. uh it's not only um a kind of self indulgence but it's a self preoccupation that happens when we feel so undone, so unworthy, so incapable of giving or, or whatever it might be, however it might manifest. And and so I really do see that that factor of loving kindness for oneself is, is this tremendous sense of strength and resourcefulness in terms of connecting to others. And of, of softness with oneself, making mm-hmm. that possible, which... <clears throat> I don't know, you know, even when we're trying to be altruistic or generous, <clears throat> we t- we're hard on ourselves, right? We, we push ourselves, and this is a different, it's a different attitude. Oh, it's very different. I mean, I guess the, the one question that's very interesting to reflect on is how do I actually learn best? How do I change? How do I grow? Is it, is it through that kind of belittling myself and berating myself and humiliating myself and Or is it through something else, some other quality like self-compassion and recognizing the pain or unskillfulness of something I've done or said and 
uh, having the energy to actually move on. So where does that energy come from? It comes from not being stuck. And how do we get unstuck? In effect, it's from forgiving ourselves and realizing, yeah, it happened. It was wrong. Uh, I'm going to go on now in a different way because I'm capable of that. I am capable of change. Mm. Um, the two of you, in your discussions about enemies, you, you also... So there's the, the outer enemies, there the inner enemies, which... Um, well, while challenging to combat, are uh, it's pretty pretty clear what you're talking about. And then I, I, there's, there's this notion of the secret enemy and the super secret enemy. And I, <laughs> I want you to, I, I, I mean, it's it's interesting language to begin with. But I, I want to, I really want to understand what you mean, and also what what's the difference between the secret enemy and the super secret enemy. So what are we talking about here? I wish I knew after we read the books. I'm just kidding. Yeah. There, are these two, uh, there are these two mental habits that lie at the core of the unenlightened psychology in the Buddhist view. And one of them is called this, basically it translates literally as the self-habit or self-grasping. And it's a kind of cognitive thing rather than a moral thing. It's different from selfishness. It's it's where one thinks of oneself as a fixed, rigid identity, separate from everything else, that somehow is, is constituted of itself. You know, it's like, you know, when you see a picture of yourself in a scene like five years ago, in a, at a picnic, at a party, or, you know, whatever, traveling in some, some setting, uh, and you then remember the scene you were in, you, we all have the we we all have the idea that I'm, I was just exactly the same subjectivity then as I am now, and so there's this seems to be this unchanging point of identity in us, which we cling to, and um, and this is the root of of our problems in Buddha's breakthrough insight, as a psychologist, not a religious thing. Right. It's his psychological breakthrough because. Of course, there is no such thing. Every cell in your body has changed. Your mind has had all kinds of other experiences, and you know you're completely. And even at the time, you were very involved in whatever your environment was. We all were, and there is there is continuity, of course, because we can remember the situation. But we are really very very different. And so the idea that the 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 habitual idea that there's this unchanged thing is actually a tremendous cause of suffering because, in fact, we're changing all the time. So it's the ultimately, most inwardly unrealistic thing that you can think of, talk about realism. And it's sort of a, it comes from a sense of sort of the fear and also even a sense of the inconvenience of being completely interconnected with everything all the time. Mm. You know, that now you want to have a kind of, you, you're, we're wrongly thinking that freedom means to be disconnected from other things, to withdraw from connection. And so we sort of try to withdraw into this place of the separate, and the Buddhists have many wonderful terms, intrinsic identity, intrinsic reality, intrinsic objectivity of ourself, uh, the, the intrinsic ego, you could say, not necessarily the, the, the resilient interactive ego, but the intrinsic ego. So that's the secret enemy, actually. Uh, and and it's it's secret, the reason it's secret it, yeah. is that it's in, invisible to us. Mm -hmm. That's what we're sort of assigning to the role. It's so imprinted the secret, in us internally. 
What? It's so imprinted in us internally that we're not even yes, aware and, of it. Right, and it's invisible to us because we think it's what we are. Mm-hmm. But it's it's what makes us unable to control ourselves in a way because, for example, take anger, come back to anger. When we're angry, we think it's that unchanging thing that is anger. So therefore, the anger has a kind of quality of absoluteness. I just have to do this. And that's why people will kill, actually, when they're filled with enough hatred and anger. Absolute in the sense of much more important than other person's life, or some people will kill themselves even when they get into that state where the motion you know, seems to connect to this absolute disconnected self uh, that never was there, but we habitually think it's there, and thereby is more absolute than our own living, breathing life. Hmm. And people get so depressed, they'll kill themselves. Or, and they get so angry and hateful in an interactive situation, they'll kill others. And, or heart hurt themselves, you know, people will bang their head on walls and things like that, you know, and hurt their head, you know. So, so that's a secret enemy. Anyway, that's what we're assigning to the role of secret enemy. And then the super secret enemy, more underlying that, is a kind of what, what they call self-cherishing or self-preoccupation. Sharon mentioned it already. Self-preoccupation, self-cherishing, selfishness. Like narcissism. It's something like narcissism, mm-hmm. yeah, where, where one is kind of, you know, inwardly always just looking at everything from one's own perspective, mm-hmm. unaware of the reality of others, in a way looking out for number one, but at a sublim- almost subliminal level, which is why it's super secret. And the reason I'm joking about whether what's secret and what's super secret, and I wish I knew, <laughs> is in some of the more, more traditional psychological texts, they make the self-habit the most foundational one and the self-preoccupation the first derivative of that. Mm. And then in some, they make the selfish one the deepest one. And I, that, to me, that's challenging. And so that's why at the, uh, we, we, I kind of lobbied for that to be the super secret. Right. And, um, and, but, you know, who knows? You know, <laughs> I, I don't pretend to really have a... I think I have to. When I get to be a Buddha someday, I'll know for sure which is secret and which is super secret. Will you tell us? <laughs> I will. Okay. I promise. Well, so I promise I'm, I will. I'm not. I think this. I'm not sure if this is. This may be really off base, but in terms of the self habit, um, uh, the secret, the identity instinct is another way you said it. And what it yeah. what it made me think of, and I don't know if this is an example of this or maybe an analogy, is. Um, is this terrible reality that I, 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 mean, I think I know this in myself a lot. I know this in so many people. Um, you you leave home, you you go away, you have this life, you become an adult, and then, uh, but but into old age, you you know, I go home to, and my mother and father are there, and I am suddenly a fourteen year old again. It's like there's this uh-huh. this immature. <laughs> Um, mm. awkward, difficult, emotional person. And it almost, you know, it feels like that's some core reality. Um, you know, you, you, people, people, uh, other, other people tell their versions of this story. Is, that, is mm. that an analogy of what you're talking about psychologically? Yeah, maybe. But the, the other analogy there or the other element there is that your parents themselves, mm. and I'm a bit older, I'm sure, than you, and I'm much older than Sharon, and... Uh, the difficulty people have with being old is even at old age, they still feel they're young. Yes. But the body doesn't obey. Or they look at themselves in the mirror and they freak. <laughs> and and they, 
And they feel they should have that 16-year-old identity in there because they feel it's there, but yet nothing seems to, the circumstances don't support that. And so then they feel very much unhappy because like, why, you know, then they have that kind of expression, youth is wasted on the young. Yeah, right, right. Mm -hmm. So, So everyone is crippled in every respect by the unrealism of thinking that they are something apart from others, ultimately and absolutely separate from them, and fixed and unchanging in the middle of all of this change. And so every educational method that the Buddhist tradition devised, meditation, conceptual learning, uh, critical reflection, is all designed to help us discover that we are just a totally interrelated being. Relativity was Buddha's great discovery in, mm. the, in the emotional, psychological, as well as physical physical, physicist sense. Mm. And we're all totally interrelated, and that's blissful. When we realize that we might think if we surrender to being totally connected to everything, how awful, then we'll have everybody else's headache, we'll be, <laughs> we'll be stuck everything in, in, in everybody else's mess. But actually, the weird thing is, which is hard to imagine and hard to explain, uh, maybe unexplainable ultimately, but it actually, they insist, it's bliss, blissful. Mm-hmm. And of course, bliss is, we haven't really addressed the happiness issue, but bliss and happiness, of course, are the key to all of this, mm-hmm. ultimately. Well, I think part of the, you know, what accompanies that sense of separateness is this effort to be in control. Mm-hmm. And right. this right. belief that we can be in control, and that, of course, is an exercise in futility. And uh, leads to such incredible disappointment and loneliness as mm-hmm. we we try to seize control over everything, the aging mm-hmm. process and mm-hmm. relationships and work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not that we're helpless and that there's nothing we can do, but we have to honor the truth of causes and conditions. You know, we do mm-hmm. everything we can, hopefully, to try to make a better world, for example. But this idea that we are going to be finally, ultimately in control so it's going to happen on our timetable... Mm-hmm. Uh, is is really pretty disappointing. And so um, there, there are a lot of consequences to recognizing the interconnection as well, that that we we realize we're part of a whole, each one of us. And it's not, you know, kind of wildly mystical or or fanciful. In fact, my favorite exercise in any gathering that I do is is to first urge people, okay, why don't you just see who comes to mind when you try to think, who has any kind of relationship to your being here in this room right now? You know, who gave you a book or told you about their meditation practice or told you about this place or whatever it is? And and we see that, you know what? We're each here as part of relationship, conversation, connection, and that this moment, like every moment in time, is a confluence mm-hmm. of all these things coming together. And however alone and apart we might feel, that's actually not what's real. Mm-hmm. What's real is this vast, vast web of connection. Mm-hmm. One of the um, One of the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines that you describe towards, you know, towards living in this healthier way um, with the reality of our lives and of enemies in them, inside and without, is uh, this notion, this discipline of looking for the good in others, <laughs> and and I mean, which really in our culture where we're so we're so, we're, we're we're trained to um, well at a at a really basic level to see what has gone wrong today as the news, right? That's mm-hmm. what that's what we look at. That's what that's what our eyes and our attention is trained to see. Um, 
this notion of looking for the good in others, even even and especially people who we may identify as enemies. Um, and and one of the principles of that that's, that's you know so so liberating to think about is that just as we are all changing every day, both on a cellular mm-hmm. level and psychological mm-hmm. level as we move through life, so are the people who it's difficult for us to share the planet with and sort of kind of acknowledge, <laughs> right? Acknowledging that that possibility in others as well. Well, it's really true. I first was given that as a meditation instruction when I went to Burma in 1985 and I was doing that period of intensive loving kindness practice and one of the first suggestions my my meditation teacher Saida Upandita said gave to me was think of different people you have different feelings for different kind of relationships with and see if you can find one good thing about them and my very first thought was I'm not going to do that I thought that's what stupid people do. They go around looking for the good in people. I don't even like people who do that. I'm not going to do that. But as I usually tell the story, I was very far from home. I was in a Burmese monastery. And the nature of the teacher-student relationship in a very traditional culture like that is not one where the teacher suggests you do something and you say, I don't feel like it. It's like you do it. So I did it, and it was so interesting because, you know, of course my fear had been that I was going to be really stupid and I was going to overlook the the things that were really wrong and I was going to become conflict avoidant and it wasn't at all like that. I realized that if I just obsessed about everything that was wrong one more time, it wasn't <laughs> onward leaning in any way. But if I could find one good thing about somebody, I actually felt a sense of connection to them or kinship mm-hmm. with them so that I could directly and honestly look at what was difficult but it was almost like from a different place. It was almost as though we were standing side by side instead of across this huge gulf of separation. And uh, I even thought of somebody I really found incredibly obnoxious, I think in a very reasonable way. I think he was pretty obnoxious, uh, not just to me. Right. But I have this memory that came up in my mind of once having seen him do this incredibly gracious, kind thing for somebody else that we both know and he did this act in the in the best possible way so she didn't feel condescended to or put down or pitied in any way. He just did it so beautifully. So his memory came up in my mind, and then I thought, I don't want to think about that. It complicates <laughs> things. It was easier when he was like all bad all the time. Right, you know? right. But life is complicated. Relationships are complicated. We're complicated, too. Yeah. Would you also talk about... Um the give-and-take meditation that you that the two of you describe um, is also a way yeah. to work with this. Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, give-and-take is a, is a visualization meditation that uh, is usually connected with people who are working at the super-secret enemy level. <laughs> that is to say, they're working on their self-preoccupation, and they're practicing the method known as the ex- equal exchange of self and other. Which means, it doesn't really mean, of course, you can't occupy another person's being, but what you can try to do, and it's, it's not, again, a particularly religious thing or a Buddhist thing, you put yourself in the other person's perspective or put yourself in the other fellow's shoes, right? We have like a slow proverb like that. Yeah. And um, so it's a practice like that where you look at yourself from another person's point of view. And when you're working on that, then sometimes in a meditation you'll 
you'll decide to practice give and take. And, and what, um, what that involves is connected with your breathing, where you know, you're in whatever setting you have created around your meditation space, whatever framework or environment you have established for it. And they're very conscious usually in the Tibetan tradition of what that environment is and who, what you think you are and all that, but I'll, I won't get into that. But anyway, so there, as you exhale, you think that um, your own happiness coming from your sense of reality, that reality itself is an inexhaustible well of positive energy, which is the Mahayana Buddhist view, that uh, the deepest layer of reality is not a blank space that's nothingness like a materialist would think, where there's nothing there. There is no nothing there or here or anywhere, because nothing isn't there. It's not a place. And the deepest place is what they call the clear light of the void, or the clear light of emptiness, which is a kind of translucent plenum of energy, which is infinite and can be drawn on inexhaustibly, although it's hard to detect because in itself it doesn't do anything. It doesn't need to because it's infinite. Mm. So there's nothing left undone, you, you could say, something like that. So, so you emanate from your deepest open center, which is connected to that infinite energy, positive energy, that is the ground of the universe, in the Buddhist view, uh, and you send light out with your exhalation as you exhale toward other beings. And you could pick a particular being, or you could think of yourself surrounded by all beings. Uh, and this light is a light of abundance, of energy, and when it seeks the particular being, it provides them with what it is that they need on a psychic or physical, any kind. it can be for, turn itself into medicine, turn itself into energy, turn itself into calmness, whatever, whatever it may be, but it goes out in the form of light toward them. And then you imagine their own inner feeling of suffering or inadequacy or insufficiency or deprivation or frustration, whatever, they, whatever you think of them as feeling. Uh, and again, it can be a single individual or many. And as you inhale, you draw that away from them in the form of a cloudy, smoky darkness, kind of shadowy thing that's, that's afflicting them. Kind of they're in the shadow. And so as you inhale, you inhale this darkness of unhappiness from them. And it, when, you, you, when it goes into your nostrils with your breath, it goes down to your heart center where your heart is connected to this this vast, infinite, inconceivable energy. So then it's completely dissipates there. It doesn't burden you in a certain mm. way. Mm. It goes to your core. And then again, you're, you exhale light to them from your happiness, and you absorb their suffering and dissipate it in the energy, infinite energy of all enlightened beings, of, of all inanimate. It's, it's like a physical reality, actually. This infinite, it's something like the quantum zero point field that the physicists talk about, oh. quantum people do talk about. Mm -hmm. It's a, where there's infinite energy of the vacuum, you know, it's kind of an inconceivability, so never mind. <laughs> but it's kind of a thing you get a glimpse of, actually, when you meditate a lot. Huh. And, uh, and so that's what it is. It's like exchanging, giving away your bliss, your, your, your happiness, and absorbing other suffering. But within, it has to be within this wisdom context 
of where your your deepest level of existence, the energy of your cells, your health, etc., is this clear light of the void. So you're you're reinforced by all enlightened beings to 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 be able to do that. If someone tried to do that where they were just thinking of like in a martyr sense, I'm going to just take all this suffering on me and what I am is this fixed identity separate from everything. Then once fixed identity separate, there will become a greater and greater sphere of darkness. Right. So it would be hard to do that and it would not necessarily be even good for a person. So you have to, it's like, now coming back to an earlier thing we were saying, just let me just connect that. The thing about being compassionate and loving to yourself comes from is the way in which you begin to realize what your real happiness is and your own real happiness is when you feel at peace with contentment with wherever you are you have a sort of sense that there are these there is this positive energy within you and around you rather than that there's nothing and you're you're poised above an abyss of nothing right. or that you're just a meaningless piece of whatever you're like materialists say we're like a you know, 15 cents worth of cheap chemicals in a bag of water. Right, right. <laughs> you know, like what the, yeah. that's what the materialists say. Or maybe some of them say 85 cents. Maybe the, <laughs> the minerals have increased in value. I don't know. But but my point is, you, you that's where the love of yourself comes, where you stop being so dependent on outer goods and outer achievements and outer circumstances, and you begin to feel kind of welling up within yourself a goodness about yourself that you that is a happiness within you and that's why you love you want yourself to be able to experience that to be open to that and then once you have that happiness then you can do give and take right that, to try that, to do it when mm -hmm. try to do it when you're miserable will maybe only add to your misery so again this is why these meditations require a wisdom component always along with the positive emotion right, all, along right. with, and that awareness awareness is wisdom always Mindfulness is a form of is the beginning form of wisdom, hmm. right? And that openness also allows you to somehow be more open in a way that is good for you and for the world. Open to the suffering mm -hmm. of others. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, well, I right. think it's so interesting that you know there's such a uh, interest these days in in empathy and and mm -hmm. uh, rightly so even in science even scientific even in science yeah. Yeah. and it's yeah. it's a wonderful thing but there's there's one way of seeing it so that empathy is a necessary but not sufficient condition for mm -hmm. compassion that they're really not identical that mm -hmm. we might genuinely open to the suffering of others which we need to do but then be frightened by that. Right, or, not know what to do with it, not be able to. That's right. Take we, it in. we feel helpless, we feel overcome, or we feel blaming. You know, like mm -hmm. I gave you really good advice last year. Why didn't you take yeah, it? You right. wouldn't be suffering so much. <laughs> or, or we might get into that weird sort of uh, effort, you know, like I'm going to fix it by tonight or maybe Tuesday at the latest. And, you know, or we yeah. might have the compassionate response, which is its own kind of response to seeing suffering, which has that sense of sufficiency, not really being uh, overcome, you know, brutalized and uh, just destroyed by the suffering, because then we have nothing left to give. You know, then, then our own pain actually becomes the central focus of what's going on in that moment. Right. And I think that image that Bob just used of the suffering in that meditation, the suffering comes through you, but mm -hmm. it doesn't harm you. You are able right, to hold right. it um, because you're able to understand yourself to be held in something right. much larger. Hopefully. 
It's uh, it's because you you have such a strong will of contentment and inner bliss. That's very very key. Mm -hmm. That is the actual root of love, of course. If you because love wishes the happiness of the other, right? So when you beloved another, that is, and so if there is, if you have no idea what happiness is, because you're so into conceiving yourself as miserable, then how are you going to love someone else? You know. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this all also gets at something else that really intrigues me in the way the two of you talk about um, our whole life with enemies and with suffering, and that is this very intriguing idea of healing our relationship with time befriending mm-hmm. time and in that way also tapping into a spaciousness and a perspective um could you talk a little bit more about that and and how to i mean it's such a wonderful idea you know what what what, what do you offer in terms of teaching in terms of helping people um draw close to that idea as a reality well i, I miss what uh, Be, well uh, uh, the question was about healing our relationship with time. Oh right. Oh, mm-hmm. and then uh, which is which is really fascinating because uh, it's like the tyranny of time. You know, I don't have enough time. And right. There's, yeah, there's so damn never right. enough time, and whatever yeah, happened yeah. to yeah. my life, you know, it's passed by like a dream. Where's, it goes faster and faster. That believe time? me, as you reach this eighth decade. <laughs> Trust me. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not that much younger, really. Yeah. <laughs> that was nice of you to say. But um, but this notion uh, of the infinite in each moment and somehow, yeah. that, oh, which is, great. right, which is not a, it's not something we learn anywhere, anywhere in yeah. our lives now. And so how to, how to apprehend that knowledge, uh-huh. how to really claim well, that Well, I think knowledge. that, you know, there's so much power when we, there's so much power we potentially have when we realize how our interpretation and our assumptions and our perception affects our experience and that we don't have to be mired in old ways of seeing that we don't have to feel stuck even if we start out there. Mm -hmm. That's part of what happens through the meditative process is that you realize you have a kind of flexibility around things. And it's not, you know, again, to be sort of in the realm of wishful thinking or being a goody-goody, but to realize I don't need to be stuck. You know, if I'm in the habit of seeing at the end of the day, looking back at the day and pretty well only remembering what went wrong, I can actually move my attention Mm -hmm. very consciously and intentionally to what went right. Not to pretend that was the only thing that happened, but to kind of fill in the picture, you know, to be uh, more inclusive. And, And we can do that with time as well. I tell this story sometimes about going to see one of my uh, teachers, this Tibetan teacher, Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche in uh, Taiwan. He was, I loved him very, very much. We we were very close. He was a very important teacher for me, and he was always kind of ill or sickly. And um, I'd gone with some friends to see him in Taiwan, and uh, he didn't seem that well at the time. And and uh, but he was kind of centrally located, which was very important in Taiwan. And then he moved to some other remote place. <laughs> and we were going to see him again. And uh, I was standing there with my friends in front of the hotel waiting for the cars to come pick us up. And we're all holding flowers and fruit and all these things we were going to offer. And I was so sad. And I kept thinking, this may be the last time I ever see him. I may only see him one more time. In this lifetime, that is so desolating a feeling, and that's so awful. And then we got into these separate cabs, 
and went off, and the cabs got completely lost. And we're just like wandering around the roads and somewhere near Taiwan. And, uh, and, and uh, it was just awful. And I, I watched my mind flip to, I would give anything to see him one more time. <laughs> like one more time suddenly seemed like the best thing in the world. Right, right. If I could only that shift have in perspective. that. Right. That's right. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And we have the ability to do that. That's part of what we we actually cultivate. And you know, people are a little bit squeamish about it sometimes. Like, oh, that's going to be, you know, weird and pretentious and phony. And I'm going to put a gloss on everything. And I'm not going to experience loss, honestly, and change and all those things because I'm just trying to, you know, be upbeat <laughs> about the present moment. But it's really not that way. It's understanding we just have the limitation of of so much conditioning, which isn't permanent. It's just a construct. And that uh, we can, it's almost like an exercise. We're going to exercise now looking at things from this angle mm-hmm, rather mm-hmm. than that angle. And, and we realize, oh, this is also true. It's not phony, but it's it doesn't get a lot of airtime usually. Yeah. Let me look at it from this mm-hmm. this place. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I very much admire the contemporary teacher Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. And how he, his concept of the power of now and all of that, and how he gets away from time by and helps people do that. It always leads them back to the present moment and unfolding the richness of the present moment. And um, I find that very effective, and it fits with things that Buddhist psychology does. Uh, also, mindfulness will very much bring you into the present moment as well. Uh, although then, then there's a thing that I'm, I've talked to Eckhart, and... I think it's very important, and maybe I believe he's, he addresses, of course, in his books. And I think we, maybe we'll focus more on that in the books that is forthcoming. I don't, I'm not giving away any secrets here. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. he indicated to me he might. And that is that in our materialist culture, we have this idea that the essence of everything is nothingness. Because when we die, we're going to be nothing. When we fall asleep, we go to nothing. And so if you go absolutely into removing all mm. of the, mm. your sense of worry about the future and being stuck in reminiscing about the past, come into the present moment, you've sort of come into a, a null place, right. which is out of the flow of time. So you've escaped from it temporarily or something like that. And, and that is a little bit of a trap, I feel. It's like a palliative, maybe for someone who's overly bitter about the past right. or overly anxious about the future, so it gives them a buzz. And so they get into it. But in a way, it then a little bit makes them unable to address issues that involve gradual and progressive change and development. So I do think that the underlying, to to be critical to that underlying concept and to realize that there's no moment, there is no present moment without its relationship to past and future, actually. So when you're narrowing down into like, I'm not going to think about past and future, you're coming into a place where the whole past and future are present, really, rather than some sort of isolated nothing that's outside of the flow of time. And so when you get into a moment like that, it's like what you said, uh, Krista, where it is the moment is infinite. So then not only do you enjoy the richness of that moment, but if in that moment you can make something a tiny bit better, I mean, the color could be... Instead of this drab beige, it could be a, a more like rich beige with a little more yellow tone <laughs> in it. 
whatever tiny thing it is, you're, you're growing it for the infinite future and that little infinite positive change. If you're a little depressed or something, you, if you're sad about something in the past, then you do a little tiny change. You can live within that moment and it can, so that that moment is connected to the infinite future. Mm -hmm. Then that's a much richer moment. It's sort of, it's, it relates to what we call in Buddhist philosophy and psychology, non-dualist or non-duality, where the, each moment is, of course, contains all, like a hologram. Each moment contains all the other moments infinitely. But also each future moment contains this moment and all the past moments. And therefore, it's a, the richness also connects to goodwill, to love and compassion. It isn't just an escape into a kind of null state, you know. Mm. And Buddhism can be badly misunderstood because of its focus on the concept of voidness or emptiness, that it's sort of going along with this null state idea that the materialists give us in our so-called secular scientific dogmas of it's only matter, you know. And uh, so that's something to think about, I mm, think. That's, yeah, that's wonderful. Time. There is a positive sense of time. For yeah. example, oh yeah, for example, Buddha had a vow as a bodhisattva. He would not achieve nirvana or perfect blissfulness until all beings had achieved it. Then he achieved nirvana 2,500 years ago. And what about us? <laughs> well, what did he do with us? Do you know what I mean? There's that, there is a problem like that. So technically speaking, we, we, in order to not accuse Buddha of abandoning us in this flow of time filled with suffering, yeah. we have to say, we have to somehow imagine that it's possible that in that moment he found our future liberation moment. Right, it right. was available to him. Right. He's, and the time between his moment of seeing that and our moment of seeing that, whether it's thousands of years in the future, in the lifetime, maybe I was a bug sitting somewhere under his mat mm. that time, whatever it was, uh, that that moment is in a way a wonderful, rich time of evolution for me to become, leave my bughood and get to be a Buddha myself someday far in the future. So, so th there is that kind of idea, you mm. know? Mm, yeah. and that's in the Buddhist story. That that's there in the Buddhist story. How he saw everybody else's future life and past life in the moment, just as he was attaining enlightenment. It it says so in all the versions of his story. It, just, it makes so me think really of um, nice. of Einstein saying that our um, physical perception of time as a linear thing of past, present, and future, and some kind of as an arrow, is a stubbornly persistent illusion. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, but but our right our five senses conspire in that in that illusion. Um, of course. Of so course. you know we just have a few more minutes, and what I what I'd like to do just briefly is um, is really touch on uh, what I want to say the public life implications of these of this thinking this teaching, um, about how we, especially you know again more specifically about how we interact with enemies. Um, you know. And I don't, I you know, I don't want to talk about so much about you know warring states or enemies out there. But I, I think the vocabulary of enemies in um, American culture has become very vivid. Um, the vocabulary mm -hmm. and the experience um, in recent years, and you know, just kind of wondering what wisdom, you know, how how you watch that, the two of you, and and what wisdom you might have to offer up. How do you think that through? I think from. On one level, you know, it's it's not easy, and it's also uh, tremendously healing <clears throat> and inspiring for others to be able to see somebody as an opponent rather than an enemy, 
and mm. to realize that you might marshal a lot of energy to try to defeat them or protect somebody else or uh, make for some kind of change in society, uh, but without hatred. And mm -hmm. we do have some models, you know, not perhaps as many as we would like um, or need, but uh, you know, we do have people like the Dalai Lama, for example, mm. Aung San Suu Kyi, or Bishop Tutu, or you know, the there yeah, are they're few so heroic, though. They're I know so they're heroic. like over the top. All right. Well, we have we have mothers, you know. Who, yeah, okay. Good. Uh, yeah. Are, yeah. I like you that. know, are are <laughs> dealing uh, with uh, lots of things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have extraordinary people living so-called ordinary lives who, who are every day managing to um, have a long-term perspective, for example, mm -hmm. and and not feel defeated by by circumstance. We have teachers who yeah. are going into those classrooms every day and and realizing, okay, I may not see the the fruit of my efforts today or this week or even this year, but I've got to be present for these children in a way that uh, is maybe mm -hmm. different from anything else they have in their lives. And I can't call them an enemy. I can't abandon them or forsake them. I mean, there's so many levels to that. You know, I think certainly, you know, look, as you say, look at the way we use language now. It's war on everything. Mm -hmm. Right, um, right, right. But, you know, one of the things I've really gotten that it's one of those very simple teachings from uh, Buddhist psychology that is yet very profound and has been very effective for me is is look for causes and conditions. Don't just stay on the surface of things. If mm. you're trying to make for change, if you're um, you know, trying to uh, undo something, you've got to look at causes and conditions to the best of your ability and see what is underlying it. I remember this Thai activist, um, Sulak Shivaraksra, saying when he was visiting us in Barry once, he said, if you want to really undermine or even destroy the sex trade in Thailand, you've got to look at agricultural policy. You know, look at why those mm, farmers are right. selling their children. Um, look deeper, look deeper. And, you know, then the change we make might be not only coming from a different place, but be more effective. Hmm. Yes, uh, the, his is the Dalai Lama. After 9-11, <clears throat> he wrote to President Bush Jr. that, uh, you know, he, he, violence would not help. He was very sorry for the terrible thing that happened, et cetera, et cetera. But a violent response would be counterproductive. He wrote that. And um, people were, his own people were shocked, his own secretaries. He later told us that they said, you, you better not say that to the American president. That's a bad thing to say. He, can't, he won't do like that, blah, blah, blah. But he insisted on saying that. And he gave talks in Europe, European Parliament, and here steadily that the 21st century cannot have major wars, that it has to be like... Um, uh, century of dialogue and conflict has to be resolved through dialogue in all cases. And uh, a lot of people, Richard Gere, after 9-11, at a, at a rock concert for the victims of 9-11 here in New York, uh, said um, that they shouldn't hate the, 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 the terrorists and so forth and was booed, completely booed off the stage. Right. And But he bravely said that. And so 
uh, the, but then there is a book. There's, there are books, uh, particularly I like Jonathan Shell's book called The Unconquerable World, Power, Nonviolence, and the Will of the People, which is about the Eastern European freeing themselves from the Russian uh, occupation without violence and how that worked, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not from Gandhi, it's not from the Dalai Lama. So there, there are people who are very astute observers of the world and um, who say that uh, the human habit of going to war over this and that, of having irreconcilable enmity, in other words, is essential to overcome on a broad scale or the world cannot survive. Uh, and, and also that these, uh, these violent things don't work, actually. Nobody's been winning any wars, right, right. if you follow me. So, you know, people say to us about the Tibetan movement, the suffering of the Tibetan people under the Chinese genocidal occupation, they will say, well, what did the Dalai Lama receive with that, with this nonviolence? Look at them, they're still getting wasted. But how about the violent people in Afghanistan? How about in the Middle East? Where are they going with all their 50, 60, 100 years of violence? They're not getting anywhere either. So the point is, that Buddha, Jesus, Zoroaster, Confucius, Isaiah, they all taught us that some form of self-restraint, of some form of there's something higher than vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, the Mm. old Jewish prophet said. That means you don't have to go get vengeance because the Lord will take care of it. (laughs) And, And so this is an ancient teaching that uh, which is considered practical by those great people who founded f- forces in our cultures of the whole planet that are still alive to us. We're still trying to live up to them, and we're still failing. Mm-hmm. But we've re- finally reached a point in history where we cannot fail because the old way of, like, I'm going to crush down this enemy and then I'll be cool is not working, and it clearly doesn't work. The weapons are too powerful. The world is too transparent. There's too much information. And so there has to be a mass effort of inner self-control. And I have a kind of theory about that. I call it cool heroism has to be evolved instead of hot heroism. Because we know that people (laughs) as soldiers can be trained to be hot and be heroes in a violent way. But can can we train ourselves to be cool and be heroes in a nonviolent way? And when I was challenged over that many years ago, I had a eureka moment where I realized, something, connecting to something Sharon just said, I realized that it isn't just the exceptional Dalai Lama and Tutu. Actually, Dalai Lama gave a speech recently in London where he scolded everybody in the audience in St. John, St. Peter's Basilica or something in London, saying, don't just depend on some hero. You have to do this work mm-hmm. yourself if you right. want world peace and so on. He was talking. But, but what I'm saying is the women on this planet are the nonviolent heroes they are doing it. They, they don't like their sons or husbands or fathers being killed in wars. And nowadays, their daughters and sisters in some of the modern armies. They don't want that. They keep families together when the stupid men are like, out aggressing each other. The brothers are beating each other up. The father and son are having Oedipal and post-Oedipal and anti-Oedipal struggle, whatever it is. <laughs> and they absorb blows from both sides and say, you didn't mean that. You didn't really want to say that. You really love each other. They call, they're the one who constantly do that, and they release oxytocin in the, the, the neuroscientists say. <laughs> there you they go. They release oxytocin in their nervous system, seeking connection, right. and not not cortisol of mm. wanting to be aggressive like the stupid males. Mm. And <laughs> therefore, but why are we still having problems on this planet? Is there are broad zones of the planet, if not the whole one, 
where the women are still disempowered from making the powerful decisions. Mm. And the stupid men are still sitting there in their little tanks and with their little bombs and they're running around with their little missiles and they haven't really understood the deal of the century with Chevy Chase, like what it's all about, yeah. some stupid phallic nonsense of violence. And, they, and the women are still not having an equal say. I'm not saying they need to mm. dominate, but mm. at least they need to be equal. And the places of the worst disaster, population explosion, poverty, whatever, on the planet are where world religions are misinterpreted. Everything is misinterpreted in such a way that that women are crushed down and have absolutely no say and are mm -hmm. having like 10 children or whatever, you know, like well, ridiculous me, business. Let me, let me so, ask you. Yeah. So yeah. Love your enemy is what women have been having to do for thousands of years. And they are the ones living the teaching of Jesus and Buddha, etc. I think actually ultimately better than the men. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, find, even though the men have been more monks and you have a few important heroes and saints who are bucking the, the Rambo trend, <laughs> But the Ulysses, you know, Achilles, Rambo trend, but 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 now it's time. Right. That's what that's that's what I have to say about. It. <laughs> Love you, I, you know. I mean, I, as a male, you know, right, I mean, right. I have no credibility right, to say right. it even. <laughs> but but that's what I say, and uh, and my wife appreciates that I say it, even though she won't quite give me an A plus. I still have like a B minus. <laughs> B for my own personal habits are still oh. those male entrenched habits. Till too much, but uh, much improvement actually. I'm an ex-monk actually, and I I've know, been told I know. Ex-monks ex make better mates right. and parents <laughs> than non-ex-monks <laughs> generally. But I, but that's just because I'm a hard case, probably. Right. Let me let me ask you this. Um, mm. Here in the 21st century, um, you know, 13 years in, so many people in the West, and I mean, this is so interesting because I know the two of you were were among those the groups of people who, in the '60s and '70s, really kind of imported Buddhism uh, in Eastern religions to the West for the first time, mm -hmm. and and uh, and now at this point, it, it really feels to me like there's this you know this critical mass um, of people uh, exploring meditation, taking up meditation, yoga. You know, just I think even in the last five years is on every corner. Now, obviously, there's a real variety in the quality of all of that, you know, but but there mm -hmm. it is. It's there. And, and so many people are finding something in it. And I, I just want to ask the two of you about, let's say, one of the most uh, kind of Countercultural uh, um, pieces of the ethos of that, which 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 this tradition is bringing, you know, into Western lives, and and it's such a contrast, Bob, to what you were just describing of the the old way, and it's this mm -hmm. kind of mystical idea that you can get in a, an ordinary yoga class or an ordinary meditation session in some inner city, that when you sit there. Uh, and do this inward work of breathing and um, planting yourself in uh, something, you know, that, you know, going back to that idea, that, that infinite goodness, um, or dedicating your, your hour of yoga to other people, right? That somehow that mm -hmm. act, that, that what looks like a private act, um, does send something out into the world does have an effect on the world and I, I, I think that um, that's a pretty mysterious idea that a lot of people are just kind of taking in now and taking in seriously so I'm curious about how you would how you understand that does that make sense 
you want to say to Sure, I'll try. Well, I think, uh, of course, one of the main ways that we send uh, a different kind of energy out into the world is through our own actions. And as we make different choices and we speak differently to one another. And um, we brought a, a, one of our teachers to America pretty soon after we had come back ourselves. Um, this man named Menindra, and it was maybe a year or two after. And uh, and there was nothing compared to what's happening now. Right. But there were some groups of, of people interested in meditation coming around as we went around the country. And we brought them around to, to see them. And we were kind of proud, like, isn't it exciting? You know, there are like 40 people <laughs> right. in the country who are meditating, you know, right. something like that. And uh, isn't it wonderful? And he said, oh, it is wonderful. And uh, there's just this one thing. He said, sometimes people in the West remind me of people sitting in a rowboat and with great sincerity and earnestness they're rowing and rowing and rowing but they refuse to untie the boat from the dock <laughs> he said you know sometimes i think people are mostly interested in these great transcendent experiences and altered states of consciousness but they're not all that interested in how they speak to their neighbor or right, how they right, are with right, their children right, and, right you know uh you know so the most profound transformation happens within us and then ripples out mm. because of how we are it's like right spirituality it's in our lives still who you are piece, when you walk you out know? of the room you're saying right yeah right you yeah. know but i do think you know i mean certainly in a, again in a traditional culture like burma if you do uh metta or loving kindness practice they will say the most important transformation is within your own mind and it's an energy it is like an energy that but it's like a gift, you know, that energy. It's like you can't insist someone like your gift. You mm -hmm. can't insist that mm. they put right. it on right away or say that's the best book I've ever been given. Thank you. You know, it's, yeah. uh, all we can do is extend it. And uh, there are times when, you know, it can make for some, some changes. Mm. Yeah, I, I would uh, add to that only briefly that uh, my good friend Rupert Sheldrake, has written a marvelous book. He wrote a bunch of good books before, but he recently wrote a marvelous book called Science Set Free here in the U.S., and he, in which, he, among other things, he elaborated his concept of morphic resonance, what he calls. And this is a biological concept that he has developed by the study of the behavior of, of birds and monkeys, animals, and also fashion and things like that. Is he a physicist, Rupert Sheldrake? Uh, he's a biologist. Biologist, Oxford, okay. okay. Oxford right, biologist, right, but he's right. a little bit of a, he's a heretic from the high church of materialism. Yeah, you know, yeah. Of Richard Dawkins and these kind of people. Yeah. Because he says that what we used to refer to in the 60s and still occasionally today, you know, vibrations, good vibrations, <laughs> bad vibrations, <laughs> right. that they vibrate and they are shared mm -hmm. between minds of people. And he calls it morphogenetic or morphic resonance. And uh, to make it sound scientific, you know, but it just mm -hmm. means that if you have a change of heart in your own heart and you have a tiny little, not even complete forgiveness, but a little ounce of forgiveness in a momentary thing about someone you don't like or someone you have a harbor a grudge against, that sends out a vibration that is sensed by other people. Or like this guy, for example, he studied people who react to somebody else looking at them. And, you know, measuring various ways, clever ways, which uh, people can feel it when somebody else is looking at them, staring at them. Mm -hmm. And then they turn and look. And, of course, regular scientists get really mad about it because they're bent on saying that the mind doesn't exist and that it's just the brain doing this and that. 
but yet, and you know, he can make it sound biological, like it's like a, a prey animal knows when the predator is staring at it, you know, there's the tiger lurking there, the deer knows, so it runs away soon enough, and that develops an enhanced uh, evolutionary possibility. You can do it in a materialist way for this concept of morphic resonance. But that's it, and the resonance that we have in this country now is basically a resonance where people are trying to break out of something that I think comes really from the originally Protestant ethos of America, the Protestant ethic, which is that you're not allowed to feel good. <laughs> Why did they burn so many wise women over the centuries in Europe and here? who were women living in the fringe of the town, maybe they weren't married, maybe they knew something about the herbs, maybe they didn't, they cured people's common cold, maybe the animals liked them, and they had a couple of cats who were friendly with them, and then they freaked out, they felt good, they had a good feeling inside, and those uptight people went, and Puritans and others went and burned them, you know, because they feel good. It's supposed to be satanic if you feel good. We have a thing about, you're not supposed to be happy, it's illegal to be happy, it's dangerous to be happy, People in this, these last few generations, not just the 60s, but even now, are demanding to be happy. Mm. And they, they're making a choice. Well, maybe I'm not armed. Maybe I don't have like 16 Uzi machine guns in my house. But, you know, I feel better. If they, you know, and I'm going to feel better. I'm going to go do yoga instead of going to the shooting range and blasting off there, shooting some terrorists or something in my mind. I'm going to go do yoga and I'm going to loosen up my my nervous system too, I can feel my inner feel good feelings that are streaming in my body all the time. I'm going to do that. And uh, that's what's happening. And uh, we are, this movement is part of it. And I just want to say one thing, it is not a religious movement. I just want to emphasize that. Right. One of the reasons we're happy with our title is that we want to show that we are sharing with other people, with whatever religion. The reason Buddhism spread to so many different Asian countries that all had their different religions is that it didn't challenge their religions. It presented a psychological mind science and a philosophical, you know, scientific science that helped people manage better with their causes and conditions. And, and, and one of the things about it is not to be against their, whatever their religious beliefs are. Uh, you know, within that, of course, different religions, like Jesus said, turn the other cheek. You could have some Christians who think they're supposed to kill some enemies who are not Christians. And, you know, they don't listen to vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. They think right. they are supposed to go out and do vengeance. But Jesus said, no, that's not good. I don't want you to do that. I'm not going to be nice to you if you go and kill people in my name, especially I don't want it. So there are different interpretations of the religions that when people feel better, they might change to some extent. But nobody's asking anybody to drop their religion. Right, right. On top of which, the Dalai Lama just wrote a book called Secular Ethics or Beyond Religions, yeah. in which he tries to elaborate something he calls secular ethics. He doesn't even insist that the, the you know, f physical humanists, or what do you call it, humanistic materialists, that they change their view. They can be materialists if they want, as long as they're not dogmatic fanatics about it right. and, and despise people who are religious. His own inner feeling, Dalai Lama, is that people with some spiritual idea that ultimately somewhere under all the rhetoric and all the, the institutional oppression and whatever there is, there is a positive energy in the universe. Those are more lucky people, actually. Right, right. But, uh, but rather than that, there's just nothing there. You know? But at least nothing is at least not actively malevolent. It's just nothing. <laughs> <sighs> but 
positive energy being at the basis <laughs> is a little more nice. So, so it's not a religious invasion. The bringing the 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 infusion of the Asian civilizations in the formerly conquering West uh, is 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 a more of a cultural and a scientific right. and a psychological thing coming from people who had a who were more wealthy actually in ancient Eurasian times than the West Asia was and therefore were more into like having some kind of pleasure had some kind right. of love they were more relaxed with their women as a whole especially India you know right. was like that and so so that's really what's coming out of India and that is helping us and but, um, and people shouldn't fear it as a religious can you know missionarization thing because oh, it is I don't, not that. yeah I don't I no, but, but, I it, but the larger them. population can be, get a little yeah. nervous about that. Yeah. So I want to be clear um, about that. So. No, that's good. We we um we need to finish. I I feel like this has been just such a great, wide ranging conversation. Is there is there anything anything either of you would want to add? Anything you want to add, Sharon, to what um well, what Bob just said? I want Sharon to have the last word. I feel mm-hmm. like I should praise Bob after he yeah. <laughs> lavishly praised me and said, well, "I love being no. with Bob." Oh, well, that's <laughs> nice. He loves being Thank with me. Thank you, Sharon. <laughs> that's good. That's really nice. <laughs> and uh, I, as you know, I love being with Sharon, and uh, I love it that people are enjoying Sharon, and hope they enjoy whatever we all have been offering to them. Yeah, well... This and it's been very nice talking to you, and yes. it's too bad we have to stop. I know. Basically, we should be on the air for at least a day or two. Exactly. Or <laughs> well, clearly. You know, but uh, I know it's not reality, so... 